Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good morning to all of you. We're glad to have you here. If you're joining us online, you're very important to us. We hope you enjoy the study of Nehemiah. When I teach this book to a group of preachers or beginning preachers, I love to begin by saying, let's turn to the last book of the Old Testament. And invariably, somebody's going to say, Malachi, I say, no, that's wrong, Nehemiah. And then they sit and look at me and say, I wonder what this dumb is going to say next. But I have their attention. I do not know that Nehemiah is the last book of the Old Testament. I know that he and Malachi lived at the same time and worked at the same time and wrote at the same time. So I have a 50% chance of being right. And I like it because Nehemiah comes before Psalms. It's the last historical book of the Old Testament. And that's the reason I do that. I want to thank Tom Collier for uh, teaching the class last week. He said he gave a, an introduction to the introduction. Well, from what I heard, he gave a good introduction to the introduction. He went beyond what I even expected of him. And I thank you, Tom, for that because I appreciate very much what you do. I want to do an overview of the Old Testament, and some of this you're going to say is not important to our study, but it is. I want to start in Genesis and look at the Old Testament very briefly before we get into Nehemiah, because if you don't get Nehemiah set right in the Old Testament, you don't get him right. And incidentally, this class is going to be, uh, the scripture will not be projected primarily. You're going to have to use your Bible. The reason if I project it, I have to read all of it, and I'm going to be skipping so you take your Bible and you go verse by verse, as I call the verses, and we'll skip a lot of material to emphasize some. Okay, let's start in uh, Genesis 1, 31. God saw that everything he made was good. Indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And he said that, of course, after he had made the woman. Everything was good till he made her, and then it became very good. And I think that's right. Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. After Adam's fall, the Old Testament became an unfolding of God's trek to Pentecost. Oh, yeah, there you go, you're right. From the, old, from, from the Garden of Eden, throughout the Old Testament, all the way to Calvary, God is getting things together to do that. God is concentrating on the day when Peter can stand up and say, this is that which Joel spoke of. Pentecost was important because that's the time sacrifice had been made for man. Jesus Christ had shed his blood on the cross and poured it out in the holy place before his father for the remission of our sins. Thank God. Genesis 6, 8 Noah found grace in the eyes of God. The point is, from Adam's fall onward, men didn't get it right. They kept trying to please themselves. And God said, I'm not going to put up with this. I'll destroy a man from off the face of the earth. 
but Noah found grace in his in the sight of the Lord. And then everything was going to be all right. When eight people came out of the ark, the only eight people on earth, Noah got drunk. And then it was downhill from there. Can you believe that? Yes, we're human. But in Genesis 12, to Abraham, God said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. God did not say, I'm choosing your descendants to be saved. We make a bad mistake when we start thinking that way. And that's how most of Christendom thinks that Abraham's descendants physically were chosen for salvation. They were chosen for salvation only in the sense that they brought the Son of God into the world. He kept that uh, nation for that purpose. And as I've often said in this class and others, they were an incubator for the seed that God promised in Genesis 3.15. They were a not a nation selected for salvation, but a na- nation selected as a utility nation to get things done so we could, not physical descendants of Abraham, but so they and we could be united in Christ. Exodus nineteen six, God instructs Moses to tell Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the Jewish nation, not called Jews at that time, but that was Israel. They would become a holy nation, a nation set apart by him for a specific reason. The inauguration of the uh, Mosaic Age in uh, Exodus 24, 8 was a shadow of what would happen in Acts 2. If I were to ask you, when was the church or kingdom established on earth? You would say Acts chapter 2. If I were to ask you, when was the law of Moses officially inaugurated? Most of you would probably say, I don't know. We'll know it now. Because in Exodus 24, verse 8, Moses takes animal blood, sprinkles it on the people and says, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all his words. That was around 1450 B.C. when he made that statement. That's when the law of Moses became effective. That's when it was inaugurated. That's when it was brought into existence. Just like the kingdom, the church was brought into existence on the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Christ. Then from there, of course, they started started toward Canaan. Joshua crosses the uh, Jordan River, captures Jericho, claims the land God promised him in 1406. He begins doing that. And then they have military leaders, which are called judges. Judges, not in the sense that we think, but they were warriors. 1050 B.C., Saul becomes first king of the United Kingdom. They were the Israelites. And in 930 B.C., Solomon, the last king, died. The kingdom divided into Judah and Israel. I think that Rehoboam was probably a spoiled brat. And uh, sorry about that. Sorry to be so plain. But he was. And God intended that kingdom to divide, though. He intended a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was going to prevent that, and God said, leave them alone. That's how it is to be. In 722, the Assyrians 
came down to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. So the ten tribes were taken away, and they're commonly known as the ten lost tribes because they did not return to the land. 627 B.C., Ashurbanipal, Assyrian king dies. The Assyrians were powerful. They had a great empire, but he died. And then there was a man called Nabopolassar. Might never have heard of him, but he's very important. He's a Chaldean. Is crowned king of Babylon. That's not the Babylonian empire yet, but it was going to be. Begins to contend with the Assyrians for control of their empire. In 616, Nabopolassar routs the Assyrians from Babylon from the city of Babylon, they go over to Haran and try to set up headquarters there and he runs them out of there and they run over to Carchemish. 607 BC, the Egyptians control Syria, Palestine. They join the remnant of the Assyrian army in northern Syria at Carchemish to defeat the Babylonians. So Nabopolassar has a problem. And to this place, he sends a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar to fight the Assyrians at Carchemish. And the Egyptians come to Carchemish to defeat the Babylonians. The crown prince, Nebuchadnezzar, conquers Carchemish finally. And to get this in perspective, though, uh, Pharaoh Necho, you remember when he was going north through Syria or through upper uh, Judah, uh, he tells King Josiah he's coming by, but not to harm him. King Josiah goes out to fight against him anyway. King Josiah is killed. I never understand that. But Pharaoh Necho goes on up there, and the Egyptians and the Assyrians are defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian crown prince. And now we're getting into some stuff we need to really look at because we're getting into our material here. After the victory at Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar goes to Jerusalem because he's going to take that city. He's going to take Judah. He's going to establish permanently, he thinks, the Babylonian Empire. But on his way, or when he arrives at Jerusalem, very soon he learns that his father is dying, and he goes across the desert to claim kingship. He does that and then comes back, and there's the first deportation from Judah to Babylon. And Daniel was a part of that deportation. He and his three Hebrew children, we often call them, they were not children, they were teenagers probably, were taken into Babylonian captivity and they were made eunuchs. I hope that was done in Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't care. It might have been done in Jerusalem. And then they had to walk a long way anyway, a thousand miles or so, but they became eunuchs so they would serve fully King Nebuchadnezzar and other kings in Babylon. In 597, there was a second deportation, and then a third and final deportation in 586 B.C. That is a year you need to remember because Nebuchadnezzar burnt the temple in Jerusalem, 586 B.C. And we're going to skip to 539 because that is when the Babylonian Empire ceases to be. You might say, well, that's a short-lived empire. I mean, it started hmm, back in the latter part of the 7th century, and now here in the last half of the 6th century, it is gone. It served its purpose. God raised up the Babylonian Empire for himself. 
He raised up Nebuchadnezzar for himself. He raised up all these countries for himself so that his plan for the Jews could be carried out. 539 B.C., you know the story. Daniel chapter 5, Daniel is called in to interpret the handwriting on the wall. Daniel is an old man. 539 back to 600, that's what, 61 years? And he was brought out five years earlier. He's been in Babylon, uh, in that area, 66 years. How old was he when he was sent to uh, Susa? We don't know. We like to say he was 17. We don't know that. But if he was 20, he was 85 years old when he read that handwriting on the wall. Get that in perspective. And then the Babylonian Empire, uh, the Persian Empire, number 20, became dominant from 539. The night Daniel read the inscription, the city was taken by the Persians, the Medo-Persians, and the Persians were a fabulous army, and they became the empire. And then Cyrus came to power, number 21, and allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem and to build the temple. I must pause here to make a comparison between Babylon and Persia. The Babylonians were a, I don't want to use that word, I will use it. They were rough, mean people. They did what they wanted to do. Nebuchadnezzar could do what he wanted to do. He was king, but the Persian king could not. The Persian, a Persian king tried to deliver Daniel from the lion's den. He couldn't. Daniel would have. Daniel would have said, look, kill those guards and get Daniel out of there. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar would have done that. But Darius couldn't do that. Because it was a different type of government. The Persians would capture a, a land, a nation, and they would allow the men in the army to keep their old uniforms and do their own practices. Of course, they would be under him. He would be their director. But he had several nations under his thumb, and he allowed them to function as nations. And when he need them, needed them as a nation in the empire, he would use them under their commanders. A far greater sight than we could ever imagine Babylon doing. And, uh, of course, when he came to the throne, the Persian throne, he said, okay, it's time for the Jews to go back to their homeland. They're going to be a nation again. That's what I want. That's who I am. I guess there's no need to bring this up, but I like things like this. How long were the Jews in exile? Seventy years, some say, and that's what the Bible says. From when to when? We start at 605. We have to go to 535 to do that. And, of course, we got them coming out about 536 when Zerubbabel leaves with them. That might could work. Or could it be 586? The destruction of the temple to 516 when the temple was rebuilt and reoccupied. That's 70 years. But I think we don't need to discuss that so much because God does round off numbers. And for you uh, 
people who sit around all day and use your slide rules. I uh, am showing my age, of course. The Hebrews, some say, thought that pi was three. That's on the basis of 1 Kings 17, I think 1 Kings 7, 23, when he talked about a round cistern that was built that was 30 cubits around and 10 feet across. That's impossible because pi happens to be three and one-seventh. Or if you want to get more specific, 3.14159, go ahead and use that, whatever. No circle can be 30 units around and 10 units across. That violates pi. Pi is not three. However, God rounds off. Plus the fact he might have been measuring the outer part of the cistern and then from side to side the inner part. I don't know how he's doing that, but that doesn't bother me, so put your slide rule away. But this, this has nothing to do with Nehemiah anyway. Number 22, 536 B.C. Zerubbabel leads the first wave of Jewish exiles. I want to point out here that sometimes we confuse Zerubbabel with Nehemiah. And we think that Nehemiah is going later on into Jerusalem. No, he's going right now, we think, in order to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah didn't do any such thing. He was not in charge of that. Zerubbabel was. The temple construction began, 535 B.C. The foundation was laid, and the young people rejoiced, and the old men cried. Why? Because it did not have the grandeur of Solomon's temple was not what they had seen. The young people were just glad to have a temple. It was going to be great. However, they, everybody became discouraged. They turned away from building it and started to build their own houses. It's easy to build your own house. It's kind of hard to build someone else's house. And then I hear Haggai saying something in Haggai 1.4. In 520 B.C., this is uh, 15 years later, it is time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Have you wished this for God? Are you pleasing yourself and not God? They got busy and they rebuilt the temple and in 516, four years later, it was completed. So there we come down to Nehemiah and uh, the... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm ahead of myself. That's not true. We don't come to Nehemiah yet. Uh, in 480 B.C., book of Esther is written. Xerxes is Esther's husband, we believe. Xerxes, the great ruler in the book of Esther, is probably the one who fought the uh, Greeks. He thought for sure he could beat them in a naval battle because he had the big fine warships and they had the, the small ships. So he went into conquer Greece, went up in the Aegean Sea and found out that his warships didn't get around as well as the uh, uh, ships of the Greeks did. And they defeated him in battle. And he was so angry, he ordered his men to beat the waters with chains of the Aegean Sea. He was a nut. But of course, Esther lived with him and uh, made the best of it. Nehemiah served Xerxes' son. She ser he served Artaxerxes years later. Arta means uh, justice, and Xerxes means kingdom. 
So Artaxerxes means a kingdom of justice. Isn't that nice? In 457 BC, go notice the dates, 516 the temple, 457 Ezra goes in as priest to cleanse the temple and get it usable. Then in 444 BC, our lesson begins to occur. Nehemiah leads a group of people from Jerusalem to rebuild the Jerusalem wall and do not think that he went in to rebuild the temple. He did not. He went in to build the wall and the gates of the temple. That is what the book of Nehemiah is about. And that's book 430 BC. It was probably written about that time. So was Malachi. Now, as we begin to read Nehemiah chapter 1, or from Nehemiah chapter 1, I want you to think about the man. There's a lot in this book about everything that, that, that is good, but the man Nehemiah is very important. Let's think about him. I'm going to take time and go through the first few verses, and then I'll do some skipping in chapter 2 when we get there. Nehemiah served in the court of Pisa, uh, of Persia. Uh, the, ne- the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev. You know, it's hard to read the Old Testament. We get all messed up. What in the world is the month of Kislev? I wish he had said November or December. That would have communicated better with me. In the 20th year of what? As I was in Shushan, the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, is what he's talking about here. I was in Shushan, or Susa, some translations say, about a thousand road miles from Jerusalem. It was a citadel, that word means little city, and it is a fortress inside a city to keep that city safe. That's what a citadel was. And Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. They'd been to Judah. They come back. I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are in great distress and reproach. Not sure what the meaning of left from the captivity is, but it seems to me that it's those who were left and descended from those uh, who were left when Nebuchadnezzar left. See, Nebuchadnezzar didn't take every single person. He didn't intend to take people he couldn't use. There were some there who were not physically or mentally fit. He left them, but there were others who hid out, and he didn't take them. And these were probably descendants of those are some of the exact men and women who were there. So it was when he heard these words, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I want to ask you something. How many times have you sat down in the last one year, thought about God's work and the importance of it, the problems we have, and wept about it? I know some of you have and prayed about it. Some of you have fasted about it. It's a natural reaction. And all of us have had sin to touch us so deeply, and we've done that. I know we've done that. What a terrible, terrible situation it is. And then Nehemiah prayed. Prayer is not easy. When I speak on prayer... How people come to me and say, prayer is so difficult for me. 
I get lost. I'm afraid to pray. I don't want to pray. I want to pray and don't want to pray. And my advice is just pray as you need to, but do it often. Pray one thing at a time. You might have a person you need to pray. Pray for John or pray for Bill or pray for Mary. Call his or her name. Make it short. God knows all the details anyway. Just put it out there. Well, I need to pray, you know, for for a good day. And so we'll pray for a good day later on. Concentrate on that. I know a man right now who's a great guy. He's lost his wife. He said, James, I can't even lead a public prayer anymore. I just, I cannot. I start crying. I said, I understand that. But do you pray at home? Yes, I do. I pray. Do you pray aloud? Yes, I do. Keep on doing that. And then when you decide to do it during worship, during public worship, pray a short prayer. Nothing wrong with a short prayer. You know, in this assembly, we have a long prayer. We pray, it's a general prayer. But then we have prayers at the Lord's table. We have a closing prayer, which is for closing. And sometimes a prayer for someone who's responded. Those are short prayers. They're focused on a particular thing. The long prayer in the morning is focused on a lot of things. It's a general prayer, as it ought to be. But I want you to notice Nehemiah's prayer. I want to read it. We get in the habit of praying in a certain way, and we need to rethink our prayers. Years ago, when we talked about things like this in school, a uh, teacher asked her little boy, in uh, elementary school, uh, what does Brother Jones say when he prays? He said, I don't know what he says in prayer, but I know the tune of it. Yeah. I remember one night as I was a lad, a woman came to the front and asked forgiveness of sin. And the preacher, who was a stranger to us, asked one of our brothers to lead the prayer. And he led a prayer. You know what he did? He led the main prayer. Did he mention the woman who came forward? No. Did he ask God to forgive her sins? No. He prayed the prayer he always prayed. I'm thankful that we at West Huntsville are signed prayers. I don't like to jump up in an assembly and lead a prayer. I do that sometimes, but I don't want to. I want to think about my prayer before I pray it. And it seems that Nehemiah has thought about his prayer. I pray, Lord God of heaven, he addresses God. He addresses God one time. I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you this day and now, this day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Nehemiah does not leave himself out. He puts himself right in there. Oh, I pray for this church and all the sins they have committed. I pray you'll forgive them. No, no, no. I have to be there too. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments and the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. 
But if you, God, remember, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. I like that. <laughs> Nehemiah is reminding God of his promise. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hands. Oh Lord, he addresses God a second time. He does not address God at the beginning of every sentence or prayer paragraph. He addresses him twice in this prayer. Oh Lord, I pray, please that in your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. I probably don't need to explain the cupbearer thing to you, but I will. <clears throat> he served the king drinks. That's what a cupbearer is. And he probably had to taste the drinks before the king could taste them because if somebody poisoned it, the king wanted to see him drop dead instead of the king dropping dead. But he'd done this a number of years. He was trustworthy. The king knew who he was. And he had, he had the ear of the king. Can you imagine being able to talk to the king two or three times every day, maybe? What a wonderful situation. You think he went in every day and said, now, king, since I'm in here, I have a request to make of you. No, 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 no. But he had access to him. He could see the man in charge of the destination of the nation. He saw him every day and worked with him. So that was a great advantage. Now we're moving on. I hope not too fast. But let's go into chapter 2. <clears throat> It came to pass in the month of Nisan. There we go again. Uh, he couldn't say April or May. He said Nisan. That's what the text says is reason. Uh, Nisan is the uh, just before the Passover. Uh, it will be Easter on your calendar. It's before that. It is the seventh month of the civil year, but the first month of the ecclesiastical year. It is... Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, that's not true. The first month of the ecclesiastical year was in October, November. Brother Glenn talked about this morning. And uh, 10 days into that was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But this is six months earlier. The, uh, the, uh, it would be the Passover. Came to pass in the month of Nisan. Uh, and this, the Passover month, and so forth. Uh, in the 20th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, King Artaxerxes, and that's what we need there. It's this Artaxerxes I found to be interesting. <clears throat> His name does, as I pointed out, mean uh, justice for the kingdom or kingdom of justice. But his real name was Macrocare. Now, unless you know the Greek, you miss that one. But macro means large and care, C-H-E-I-R, means hand. He had a large hand. And his Latin name was Longamanus. Manus is hand, and Longa is long. This guy literally, history reveals this, had long arms. He was deformed. Interesting. So he comes in to see King Artaxerxes. When wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence before. 
No, you were not sad in the presence of the king because if he didn't pick up his staff when you came in, the guards would get you. That was just the rule. Somebody comes in, comes in to serve the king or converse with the king, uh, he would, the first thing he would do is get his staff and lift it, which means come on up here. Didn't do that, he's dead. So you come in with a scowl on your face, you're gone. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of the heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Why? He feared for his life. Said to the king, may the king live forever. They always said that. He won't, but I don't know why they said it. I do know why they said it. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and the gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the Lord of heaven. And I said to the king, stop here just a minute. When the king said, what do you request? Nehemiah said, wait just a minute, give me 15 minutes. Dropped to his knees, started praying. Not so. I mean, the king would have said, get him out of here. How long was his prayer? I'd say about five seconds. I didn't have a stopwatch on it, but I'd say about five seconds. King said, uh, what is your desire? Oh, oh, uh, uh, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste? Oh, I'm sorry. And then he prayed after that. I've already read that. So he makes a request. Verse 5. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant be found in favor with your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. That took a man to say that. He wanted to be off the job. He wanted a vacation. The king depended on him, had for many years. And he said, I want to leave you for a time. The gall of him. The king said to me, and the queen was sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set a time Put that map on the uh, first map on the screen there, and let's see what we're talking about, please. This is the route that was taken. Yeah, the route taken from uh, uh, Susa, where they were, over to Jerusalem. And it goes up through Babylon, crosses the Tigris River, goes up through Babylon, and then crosses the Euphrates River at Babylon, and goes on down to Jerusalem. And you say, wow, I'm smart enough to see that if he goes from Uruk straight over to Jerusalem, he's going to save a lot of miles. He's going to kill himself too. No water, no food, no nothing. That's a desert. Soldiers did that. Nebuchadnezzar's army went that way probably when he went over to claim the the kingship. But ordinary people didn't go that way because they were not equipped for that. Down in verse 7, furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the regions beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. 
and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city walls, for the house that I will occupy. Well, Nehemiah just asked for his kingdom. You've asked for everything else. The gall of you. No, no. Nehemiah knew what he was doing. There's the man. There's the man. He was sad. He fasted. He prayed. Went in to see the king. Sad. A no-no. King asked him a question and he prayed. The king gave him permission and then said, what do you need? And Nehemiah said, I need all of these things. I need enough timber to build these walls and gates. I need a protection. A lot of people are going to be against me and I want them to know I'll come in your authority. And the king said, the king granted me them according to the good hand of my God upon me. God be blessed. That's what he was saying. Verse 9, went to the governors in the region beyond the river, gave them the king's letters. Now the king has sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Nehemiah is protected at this point. When Sanballat, the Horonite, And Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard of it. They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Sanballat was a satrap or governor of Samaria. He was a Horonite. I'm not sure what that is. It, it might have been a Moabite town, Horonium. Or it might have been a town of Beth Hora, not far from Jerusalem. Uh, just probably was. But he was, he was there as a leftover in that case from the captivity. And he was in charge. He was governor of that area. He was in charge. And Tobiah the Ammonite, they were deeply disturbed. But Nehemiah didn't care. He had a job to do. Then I rose in the night. I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one I rode on. And I went out by night through the valley gate. Put that next slide up there, please. If you get that interpreted. Through the valley gate of the serpent well and refuge gate. That's called a dumb gate in the King James Bible. Viewed the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates were burned with fire. I went to the fountain gate, the lower right, and I found, uh, and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So went up by night by the valley, reviewed the wall, then I turned back and entered the valley gate, the lower left, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told it to the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. He was assuming a lot. He had men with him who were 
men of authority who were wise men. But he said, I, I'm not going to talk to them about it. I know what I had to do. I know what has to be done. I'm going to see that it's done. I'm going to review these walls. Incidentally, we don't know when those walls were torn down or burned. Many people believe they were torn down by Nebuchadnezzar uh, in 586 B.C. I have a problem with that because uh, when the temple was rebuilt, it would have been left exposed. Jerusalem would have been left exposed. And these 2.4 tenth miles of the uh, city would have been wide open to anybody. But we have no historical record of those things being burned or torn down later. So I can't make the argument. I'm just looking at what's reasonable. So cause a meeting. Verse 17, you see the distress we're in, how Jerusalem lies waste, its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that had, he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. Nehemiah set the stage. Come and let us build the walls. They reported by saying, let us rise up and build. That is the sign of a leader. He laid the foundation and they made the commitment. I was teaching in a vacation Bible school one night, one week, over in Augusta, Georgia. Not a congregation I was a member of, but I was asked to teach there. I was teaching a teenage class. And on the second night I was there, <clears throat> one of the elders opened the door, looked in the room, and he said, okay, you have 12 here tonight. Uh, your goal tomorrow night is 20. I didn't say anything, but I did think, why didn't you ask the kids? Why didn't you say, how many more can we bring tomorrow night? 20 would have been a small number if you'd let them set the goal, and they would have worked harder. We didn't have 20 the next night. Didn't work. Nehemiah didn't set the goal. He laid the foundation to get the job done. So when Sanballat the Horonite to buy the Ammonite official and Geshem, the Arab heard of it, they laughed us, laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Scared Nehemiah to death. They're going to report him to the king. He's going to be executed for this. No, no. I answered and said, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. No grasshopper complex. We are as grasshoppers in their sight. I started to build a sermon on that called grasshopperitis, but I haven't gotten very far on it. But we need a sermon on grasshopperitis. Nehemiah had already passed that course. He was not a grasshopper. The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build but you have no right, no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. This is none of your business. 
Oh, wait a minute. We live, I'm the governor here. We live here. And we've been using that temple. Don't you tell us we have no right. I'll show you who you are, who we are. I'll show you who you are. You have no authority here. Uh Uh-oh. But God does. We need to think of that when matters come down on us. And we think that we're not going to make it. God knows what is right and best. And we need to ask him. We need to request his presence. And ask him to be with us. And help us get the job done. Well, according to my procedure, we... Didn't have time for questions. I don't like questions. I might not be able to answer them. That's not really true. I can't put up with questions because I have a hard time hearing them. And also, I can't finish the material. I'd rather give it all to you and then let you ask questions to Glenn because he can deal with those. But you can ask me questions. Write them down. Give them to me. I will deal with them as best I can. Thank you for being here. God bless you. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for the blessings we have in Christ. Thank you for adults that want to study and learn God's word. Thank you for Nehemiah who gives us a great example. Example for elders, preachers, deacons, leaders, and even the common Christian. That we may follow in his footsteps. Bless us, care for us, protect us from evil. We pray through Christ. Amen. Don't run in the hall. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.